Welcome to uh, Christ Bible Church. We're so glad that you're here to join us as we go through God's Word. But before we open up uh, with chapter 7, I want to check in on your homework from last week. First service had a failing grade. They got an absolute F. Not a single person told me the memory verse uh, from last week. So does anybody know it? What Chuck asked you to memorize last week? One person. I am the bread of life. That, congratulations, you guys pass. Uh, the whole service can pass with a few answers. I'll allow that. John 6:48. I am the bread of life. I only do that uh, to just emphasize memorizing scripture is really helpful. Uh, and we don't often talk about it from the pulpit uh, as we preach. And I wanted to make a point to follow up because uh, we were given this opportunity last week as a congregation uh, to do that. And to see that you guys did that uh, and encourage you to memorize scripture if you have children to memorize scripture with them as well because uh, it is a great uh, privilege and, and one of the great spiritual disciplines that we have but let's open up John chapter 7 this is a long chapter we will go through the whole chapter um, but we will break it up into different sections today as we look at Jesus at this thing called the feast of booths and so let's begin by looking at the first 10 verses together John chapter 7 Verse 1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying, these, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for John chapter 7, uh, for this wonderful narrative of Christ at this Feast of Booths, discussing, teaching, prodding, questioning, but in all of these things, trying to draw people to the great truth that he is the Messiah. As we sit this morning and open up your word here in John 7, we pray that the Holy Spirit would open up our hearts and our minds to receive your word, to apply your word, and to respond according to your word. Lord, we thank you for the encouragement of Scripture, uh, for these words that Jesus uh, gave us in this narrative of John chapter 7, and we ask that they would be convicting to us and prompting us to respond in faith this morning. And it's in your name we ask these things. Amen. John 7 opens up. Jesus is still up in the north. We're not going to put any more maps up for a while. We're done with maps two weeks in a row. Uh, sorry, Chuck. Uh, but he is still up in the north and has not made his journey down south. But the image that we have here is he's sitting there with his brothers. And what is happening is there's this festival at hand. All of the people in, in Galilee and Judea, even in the surrounding world, uh, people who would have followed Judaism are sojourning, they're, they're almost like pilgrims, heading to Jerusalem for this 
festival. It's the final festival of the year, and according to uh, historians, it's the most popular festival of the year. It's called the Festival of Booths, or the Festival of Tabernacles. And it represented the end of the harvest season, where all the people would gather together and thank God for his provisions, for the way that he had provided for them that year in the harvest, and how he had provided for them in the wilderness, uh, all the way back to the book of Exodus. And so they would gather together for this giant festival that would last a whole week, seven days of a celebration amongst all of these people. People from all over would gather, and because it was the most uh, popular, we can assume that it was probably also the most well-attended. They called it the Festival of Booths because originally, we don't know if at this time they were still following this practice, but when we went through Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra reinstates this practice, that they would literally come to Jerusalem and camp out in tents surrounding the city. They would stay in tents or tabernacles uh, because they wanted to remember that heritage when they had traveled through the wilderness and lived in tents in the, in the desert before they had gone into the land of Canaan. And so this was a huge, giant camping trip. Giant. Massive. People were celebrating it, and it was a great time. This is the backdrop of everything that's happening here in John chapter 7, is this feast of booths and Jesus getting ready to either attend the feast or his interactions with people at the feast. And there's three things that we'll see here in chapter 7 about Jesus during his time here at the Feast of Booths. The first thing we'll see this morning, Jesus knows all things, and all things happen according to his timing. Jesus knows all things, and all things happen according to his timing. The second thing we'll see is Jesus is self-authenticating. Jesus is self-authenticating. And finally, the third thing we'll see, that Jesus is the fulfillment of both the Sabbath and of the Feast. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath and the Feast. Those are three things that we'll see this morning. So as this chapter opens up, we have Jesus engaging in with, with a dialogue with his brothers. They're kind of going back and forth, and his brothers are imploring him, go down to this feast, join us as we head to Jerusalem, and show your disciples your work. Now this isn't probably his 12 disciples, this is probably disciples in a much more general sense, people that had started to desire to follow Jesus in some capacity. Now, his brothers could be asking him to do this for a variety of reasons, but I believe they're probably asking him to do it um, because they have seen his influence dwindle. They don't believe in him yet as the Messiah, which John makes perfectly clear to us here, and it's probably important that he does this because as people would have read John chapter 7 in the early church, they would have known that many of Jesus' brothers did in fact become believers. But at this point in time, when this interaction is happening, they have not believed that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Nevertheless, they're asking him to go with them down to Jerusalem, probably because most of his disciples in Galilee have deserted him, because he had just given them a very hard teaching in John chapter 6. So to travel down to Jerusalem and to engage in this very popular festival to show his works would be to reinstate or regarner support for his ministry. They probably see him as a political liberator, like many of the people did after the feeding of the 5,000, and want to see him to begin to amass a group that he might lead them to the kind of deliberation that they want. The, they are imploring him, go down. It has nothing to do with their belief 
in him as the Messiah. And they probably think, what better place to garner support than the most popular festival of the year? Surely this will be the place that you gather people from all over the Jewish nation and surrounding countries in order to start the kind of revolution that we want. But Jesus simply replies to them, it's not my time, go without me. If that's where this little interaction ended, we would say, okay, that's fine. But the brothers go. And in verse 10, Jesus goes. And as the readers, we go, wait a minute, I just thought you said, I am not going to the feast. And then you went to the feast, Jesus. How can you say that? Were you lying to your brothers? We're left with some questions here. Why did Jesus say, I'm not going? And then goes immediately. Like the next verse. Well, people interpret this in two ways. The first, and I don't believe this is a very convincing view, is that Jesus uh, is just simply saying, this is a matter of chronology. I am not going right now. It is not my time right now. It could be in five minutes, ten minutes, tomorrow. Uh, So he's not lying because it's just a matter of chronology. The Father has not permitted him to go or directed him to go yet, and so the time is not to go. I don't find this altogether that convincing. The other view, and the one I think is more reasonable, is that when he says, it's not my time, he's making a statement about the way he will enter Jerusalem. It is not my time to publicly enter Jerusalem. If he were to show up at the start of this festival, the reception that he gets on Palm Sunday just a few months, maybe six months later, uh, where the crowds shout, Hosanna, 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 glory to the king, and they treat him as a king entering the city, might occur here instead of when it's intended to do according to God's plan and time. The time of his public entrance into Jerusalem is not quite at hand, for he knew that that public entrance would culminate in his death, and he's not ready to do that yet. God has not finished his work here on earth. And so he chooses instead to enter this festival privately. And I think this is why he would not go with his brothers, because almost certainly his brothers saw this festival as the perfect opportunity to grow his following and to win the support of the people. We can imagine his brothers would be shouting as they enter the city, here comes the man that raises the dead to life. Here comes the man who feeds 5,000 with a few loaves and a couple pickled fish. The renown that he has is growing, and the brothers know this, and might make a public spectacle if Jesus arrives with them. And so he chooses not to go publicly with them, but wait and attend privately. It's not his time to publicly enter Jerusalem. He will not make that public entrance. And one of the truths we see here, even in these opening interactions with his brothers, is that God and Jesus are omniscient. What do we mean by that? That's a big term that simply means he's all-knowing. Jesus is all-knowing. But part of what we affirm when we say that is not just that God possesses all knowledge, uh, but part of what he possesses as knowing all things is all things that do happen and all things that are possible to happen. Uh, And so when we say Jesus is all-knowing, he is saying even here that if I go... This will be the result. And there's several instances of scripture. David is, has a great example of this when he prays and says, if I go to this city, will I be defeated? And uh, God's like, yes. And so David doesn't go, 
Right? So there's instances that we have in Scripture of God knowing what will happen if a certain series of events take place. And I believe that Jesus knows that he will not be permitted to publicly enter Jerusalem without it leading to his crucifixion. And he knows that that timing is not yet ready. Jesus is all-knowing. He knows all things that happen, and he knows uh, all things will happen according to his timing. That's a great truth for us to rest in. To know not just that God knows all things, but he knows all things, and all things will happen then according to his timing. And so we can implore God, we can pray to God, we can wrestle with God, um, but we can have great peace knowing that all the things that happen, all the things that God will bring about to, to pass will happen according to his timing, not our timing. And we can rest that we serve a God who is powerful and is the ruler and is sovereign over all of these things. Jesus knows all things, and all things will happen according to that timing. But the, sh- the scene shifts now to Jerusalem. And for the rest of this chapter, starting here in verse 11, we have these little side dialogues, this chit-chat happening. Uh, and it's not really uh, out in the open, it's kind of muffled. Why is this? Um, because the authorities do not like Jesus. And we'll bring that back into uh, focus as Jesus talks about his earlier interactions just a few chapters ago, which has resulted in people seeking to kill him. Uh, everyone is talking about Jesus. They're beginning to discuss where is he? Who is he? Is he good? Is he bad? Is he a deceiver? Is he a liberator? All of these things are beginning to happen in this entire chapter from this point forward has this side dialogue of people trying to figure out who is this man Jesus and is his teaching legitimate? Is this a man that we should follow or not? All of this points to the growing influence of Jesus and also the growing opposition of the religious authorities to Jesus. And in John, here in John chapter 7, we begin to sense a climactic confrontation coming between the two. And we'll see that come into play over the next few chapters more and more and more as the tension growing between Jesus and the religious authorities who are unhappy with what he is doing. And so what we see, though, here in the next few verses, 11 through 36, is all about Jesus, and it's all about these people's failure to really understand who he is. And there's a simple truth here that sin distorts the understanding of reality. There's one thing we're going to see over and over and over is that the people who are living in sin, they're living apart from God, they've refused to submit themselves to God, can't understand who Jesus is because sin has distorted their reality and their understanding. Without faith, no one's going to be able to know or understand correctly who Jesus is. So let's go to chapter 11 here, or, chapter, or verse 11 here in chapter 7. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others have said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So after John tells us how everybody's looking for Jesus and they're talking about him, halfway through this feast or so, Jesus enters the temple and begins teaching. What is the result of this teaching? They marvel. 
We don't know what he's teaching. We don't know what he's saying. But the result of what he is teaching is the people are left marveling and, and they give us a question. How can a man without learning teach like this? In other words, what they are asking is, how can a man who hasn't sat under the great scribes and Pharisees in his education teach in such a great way? Why do they ask this question? What's the nature of the training that their teachers received? If you desired and were qualified to become a rabbi, you would go to a rabbinic center for training. You would sit under great teachers. You would read all of the history about the Old Testament and all of the law that had been passed down. It's called the oral law, the law given through the Pharisees uh, and others. And so you would learn not just God's word, but you would learn all the traditions of the Israelites and the rules and judgments passed down over centuries by previous rabbis. But the, Jesus, uh, the people know that Jesus had none of this training. He teaches like he has authority, but he hasn't received the authority from one of these rabbinic centers. So the marveling here is twofold. It's due to the quality of his teaching, but it's also due to the fact that he teaches with such great quality and conviction, despite not going and being approved by one of these formal institutions. There is a tension growing that the people can see, and so Jesus is going to respond to this question that is circulating about himself in the crowd. And he says very plainly, looking at verse 16, Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? But Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. D.A. Carson notes uh, in his commentary that one of the consequences for studying at these rabbinic centers was the tendency for the religious teachers of that day to substantiate every pronouncement by appealing to precedent and earlier rabbinic judgments. Everything they said was validated not by their own teaching or scripture, but by previous judgments. And so for Jesus to not appeal to former judgments would indicate to them and to maybe some other people there a certain level of arrogance and a drifting from established tradition of the Jews. They don't like this. Jesus no doubt knows this, and so he is saying, just like you are claiming precedence, and that's why you're upset with me, so am I. Therefore, Jesus' answer to them about how he can teach in this way without having all of this formal institution, without teaching through the judgments and through the, the works of the Pharisees and the oral law, is to show them the history and the precedent of his teaching. He is not appealing to the, form, the formal oral law of the Pharisees. He is appealing to the word of God. He is appealing to God himself. And he is saying, you appeal to these people for your history to show that you're not teaching your own, you're not making these things up, that you're actually rooted in something. I am also appealing to history, but my history is a greater history. 
My history comes from the one who sent me, from God himself. Unlike your teachers, you were relying on the teachings of men, my teaching comes from the Father. And my teaching is therefore superior because it predates all of this other teaching. It is the authentic source. It goes all the way to God, and it is superior to your traditions. And so the Jewish people then are marveling because Jesus did not teach like these Pharisees, but instead he taught like the man who speaks God's word. He was not citing endless tradition and custom. Uh, He had just been speaking the words of God. And if they would like to validate this teaching, he tells them and us today how. Desire and do God's will. If your will is God's will, you will see that my teaching is valid because its source is God. I'm not teaching to please myself, to prop myself up. I'm teaching because I'm doing the Father's will. And today we can look at this and say, if our will isn't the same as God's will, we're not able to validate and understand God's teaching and the teaching of Jesus even here because we're not looking to God. And the same thing is true for those people receiving this word and struggling with Jesus uh, at this point in time at the Festival of Booths. It brings us to our second point this morning. Jesus is self-authenticating. What do we mean by that? Only by believing in Jesus are you simultaneously able to see that he is true. There is no higher authority than God, and therefore there is no authority that can judge God. We talked about this briefly when we did Sola Scriptura a few weeks ago on Reformation Day, Uh, but there is no external source that God must submit to in order to be validated. He's not like some frog that we study in biology, dissecting and choosing what we see and how we understand it according to our own opinion. God is not something that we politely examine. He is something we submit to and somebody that we submit to. The result is he's to be believed. One commentator says this, only by submitting to God with complete willingness to do his will are we in a position to evaluate the claims of Jesus. But scripture promises when we do come in that attitude, we discover that Jesus' teaching is indeed the very truth of God and therefore Jesus is who he claims to be, the divine son who is one with the father. This is a step of faith. And we're reminded that through faith, we believe in Jesus. And then in that faith, God brings about the ability to see God and understand God. Sin distorts reality, but the grace of Christ and redemption, when we are restored, brings us into the light and we're able to see God and understand God. But sin has blinded these people. They are trying to judge the authority and authenticity of Jesus' teaching because they are judging according to their standards that they are submitting God to. They are not submitting themselves to God's standards. Their own will and their own desires are the higher authority. Jesus brings us into focus when he begins to talk about the Sabbath and the issue at hand with why they want to kill him. In verse 22, he says, Moses gave you the law, but none of you keep the law. Why are you trying to kill me. This prompts some people accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed. Who's trying to kill you? Nobody's trying to kill you. You're crazy, man. Um, But Jesus says, you are trying to kill me. You're mad. Why are you mad? Because I healed somebody on the Sabbath. A few chapters back, there's this paralyzed man. We read about it. We taught about it. He was sitting at this pool. Jesus heals him. It's on the Sabbath. Starts an uproar. They don't like it. The religious teachers are upset and they begin seeking to kill Jesus because he is a Sabbath breaker according to their customs. 
But he says there's inconsistency in the way that you apply these Sabbath laws from the Old Testament. I did one work, it caused all of this commotion, but you repeatedly work on the Sabbath. When? When you need to circumcise. When you need to circumcise on the Sabbath in order to keep the commands of Moses, you are pleased to do that. And in doing so, you perform work on the Sabbath, but you don't see this as a contradiction of the Sabbath. And so we have to ask, what is circumcision? Circumcision was viewed as a perfecting rite. This is what D.A. Carson writes. One member of the body by this rite was perfected and had to be perfective on the eighth day after birth. How much more then must an act be undertaken even on the Sabbath if it perfects the whole body? This is the issue at hand. Jesus is saying, you are happy to do this because you think it perfects the body. It's following the customs of the law. But how much more, how much greater is what I have done when it has not perfected just one part of the body, but the whole body? Do you not see the inconsistency of your view? And so D.A. Carson finishes this thought by noting that Jesus' healing of the whole man thereby becomes a fulfillment of Old Testament circumcision. And on that very day served as a signal of God's Old Testament purposes of redemption and rest. Jesus here then is insisting that his activity is the fulfillment of the redemptive purposes of God set forth in the Old Covenant. They're mad because he healed. He's saying, it is good and according to God's will that I healed. I perfected the whole body. You have no problem doing this, but you're just mad because I did it not according to your traditions and customs. And so they're seeking to kill him. And in addition, in seeking to kill him, they reveal that they are, in fact, the violators of God's law. They not only began plotting to kill him on the Sabbath, which was a day of no work, They're actually committing one of the most basic trespasses against God's law. Thou shall not kill. Right? There is a commandment not to murder, and yet these people are pleased to do it because Jesus has violated their customs and traditions. If they had faith, they would see Jesus not as the rebellious Sabbath breaker, but the one who was the fulfillment of the Sabbath, the one who came to provide the ultimate rest that the Sabbath pointed towards. But again, sin has blinded them. They don't judge as people who have faith and are doing the Father's will. Their desire is to follow traditions and to please the people. They judge by appearances, such as this man disregards the Sabbath, and reveal themselves to have poor judgment. This is the source of the rebuke in verse 24 when he says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. What is this judgment? It's the wisdom and operating according to the will of of God. But this causes another round of whispering amongst the people. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees began to collude together to silence Jesus. They send their temple guard to arrest him, but this will not work because it was not the appointed time of God yet. And this story builds and builds and builds until we get to this climactic moment in John 7:37. And so let's go there and begin to read uh, this morning. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified." 
The final day of the feast. Why is that significant? We need to remember what's going on. This is all happening during this festival or feasts of booths. Again, it was a festival to celebrate God's provision and his care for his people. And the final day of this feast was the most significant day. On the seven days of the feast, and on this last day specifically, there's a golden container that they would take and fill from a nearby pool of Siloam and carry in a procession led by the high priest towards the temple. As the, uh, as the procession approached the water gate, which is on the south side of the inner court, three blasts of trumpets would ring out. This would indicate a time of joyful occasion. As everybody watched, uh, watched, the priest then would proceed around the altar uh, with the container, and then there's a temple choir. What does this temple choir do? They sing what's called the halal, which is Psalm 113 to 118. And they would sing this whole song, and once they reach uh, Psalm 118, everybody that's in attendance around, so this temple choir, but also all the men and women that are gathered to celebrate this festival, would take uh, some twigs in their right hand, and then in their left hand, raise a piece of citrus, uh, start to bang them and make noise with them, and they would all cry out three times, give thanks to the Lord. It is a powerful, loud procession. At the conclusion of this, the water was offered to God. It was literally poured out of this golden container uh, in order to, in, into silver bowls. This was a symbolism as part of the feast. What did it symbolize? Two things. The Lord's provision of water in the desert, but then simultaneously these people also believed that it was a symbol of the Lord's pouring out of his spirit in the last days. The pouring of water at this Feast of Tabernacles was referring not just to God's provision in the desert, but also into the Messianic age from which the streams of water from the sacred rock would flow over all of the earth. They were looking for this. They were longing for this. So when Jesus stands up on this final day and says, Come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Everybody knows what he's talking about. And it is an astounding statement. I am the source of the blessings that will come to the earth. I am the one who sustains the people with water in the wilderness. You want the blessings of God? It's going to come through me. John clarifies and tells us that this is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come as a sign of the Messianic age, which is a good thing for us, that we have the Holy Spirit, that he's our helper and our guide. Uh, and it's this brief discussion here that then prompts these people to respond. How do they respond? With division. Some believe. Some don't believe. Others are simply there asking, is this man from Galilee? In this, they reveal that their trust is not truly on God. Jesus has done these things. He's made this dramatic proclamation, and yet they're like, isn't that guy from Galilee? We know Scripture, and we know the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee. This man must be crazy. Their ignorance blinds them. They don't actually go to Jesus and say, where are you from? I see a basic question. I know the Messiah can't come from Galilee. Where are you from? Where's this man from? To which people could say, he's born in Bethlehem. He's from the line of Jesse. But nobody asks this question. They just assume he's from Galilee because that's where he's been living, not necessarily where he's from. They think they hold the keys to knowledge and are proven to be foolish. 
And so as the chapter begins to come to a close, in verse 45, the attention shifts back to this temple guard that was sent out to arrest Jesus. But something remarkable has happened. They come back empty-handed. And what is the result? They're astonished by Jesus' teaching and are rebuked by the teachers of the council. They mock this temple guard as people who are easily manipulated. Are you deceived? Are you a fool? Are you ignorant? Don't you see that all of the learned, educated people haven't fallen into the trap of this hooligan over here doing these things, distracting you with this false teaching? We hold the keys to knowledge and have rejected him, and you all should reject him as well. But in their boast, they reveal that they have not, or they boast that they have not been fooled, but in their boast, they reveal just how fooled they actually are. They are the ones that have been fooled to the greatest extent. And as we finish this morning, as we look at these people, I think it's a great time for us to simply take a, a moment and say, when we are shamed today by the world around us for what we believe, when they look at us and say, we hold the keys to knowledge, how could you guys believe such a foolish thing like angels and a creator God and all of this stuff? Don't you know that there's evolution? Don't you know science has proven all these things? How could you believe such foolish things? And we are shamed for our beliefs. We should look here and find solace that often the people who oppose God are the quickest to cast shame on the people who are following God. That our knowledge is God's knowledge. We follow him. He doesn't need to submit to any authority on this earth. He is the authority. He is the ultimate source of truth. And so when we follow what God has given us in Scripture, instead of the most popular philosophy or psychology of today, we instead say, we belong to God, and he is the judge, not you. And we should find no shame in that. It should be a call for us to trust God with a resounding faith rather than wilt in the light of oppression from people who think that we are foolish. And so this morning we're called to trust God through faith. And when we do, we see that he is who he has claimed to be and done what he has claimed to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you uh, that Jesus is the rock that all blessings flow from. That he is the water that provides for the people in the wilderness. And Lord, that we don't need to be ashamed of our belief when the world around us thinks they hold the keys to knowledge and rebukes us for what we believe. Father, we submit ourselves to you and to your truth. We desire to possess the truth of Scripture in our hearts and in our minds, knowing that uh, the authority that we submit to is greater than the authority of this world. And so we thank you for that. We pray that we would have confidence that you are a God who is all-knowing and that you bring all things to happen according to your good plan and in your good timing. And so we trust in that, Lord, knowing that you are the God who is dependable and trustworthy that you reveal yourself through Jesus in Scripture, here even in John 7, as the Messiah, as the Savior. Lord, let us not be those people who question, who dissect, who want further proof, but be people who submit ourselves to Christ and to his teaching and to his authority in faith and with great belief. 
Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for what he has accomplished and did accomplish on the cross. And it's to him uh, we give all glory this morning. Amen.